Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. You know, we had a rocket go into space last night, and I always love that kind of stuff. I'm a sucker for that. I grew up with the Apollo program and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, my mom, who is, she's older than you, though, Paul, but she gets teary when she watches it. There's this big nostalgia yeah. around it. And I think, I don't know, I think there's value. But anyway, it's, it's, it's yeah. very cool. But this is completely commercial uh, flight, uh, so very cool. Ed Ludlow, he's our West Coast correspondent. He covers rockets and all that kind of stuff. I don't know what he does for a living, but apparently he's in Cape Canaveral, Florida. Ed, what can you tell us about this flight? Well, I'm talking, this is a really a commercial flight. There's no astronauts or anything. Yeah, this is an all-civilian crew. Um, the mission commander is a chap called Jared Isaacman, who's the CEO of a fintech company, Shift for Payments, and he's a billionaire. So, you know, we're kind of continuing this theme. He's funding the mission. But the other three crew members are genuine civilians. You know, they're not professional astronauts. And they're currently orbiting Earth at an altitude of 360 miles. You know, that's further than the International Space Station. It's further than the Hubble telescope even. And it's actually the furthest that SpaceX has ever sent its Dragon spacecraft. So this is kind of a real landmark mission for not just commercial spaceflight, but human spaceflight. You know, you don't have to be a decorated astronaut with, a, with an Air Force back history to make it. You can go to space now being an everyday Joe. So let's talk about the everyday Joe, Ed. When will this officially really start to ramp up? And are, is it monthly, quarterly, weekly? What can we expect? That's the top question. You know, SpaceX are really supply constrained. Uh, Benji Reed, who's one of the directors of the company, spoke to me about this uh, the day before the launch, that, that, you know, they have around four to six flights potentially in 2022. Um, but the demand is there, they say. You know, there is a list of willing paying customers. I think there's still massive question marks about the economics of this. You know, on this occasion, you have one billionaire. Okay, guys, he's a modest billionaire, just a couple of billion. Um, <laughs> but he's paying for it with his checkbook. And, and that's really the question that SpaceX have not been able to answer. In fact, they haven't answered me. I've asked. Going forward, who pays for this? You know, does it rely on philanthropy? Does it rely on SpaceX kind of discounting trips? Is this done through lotteries? You know, things like that. And, and we really don't know. For now, it does really seem like a rich man's sport. What are these four passengers? I guess I, guess I don't call them astronauts. What are these passengers doing up there for three days yeah well what i would say is this that they the dragon capsule is fully autonomous you know it's in orbit but you know largely it powers itself and can be controlled from ground control um by spacex but if something goes wrong they have had five to six months of intense training for different scenarios to react and, and deal with that but you know largely they're up there for the experience i don't know if you guys remember the image but when they send dragon up to the international space station the nose cone opens up and that is the, the zone that docks with iss but they don't need to dock with iss so when the nose cone opened this time around it revealed this beautifully curved thick glass window so they'll be taking time to look out of it look back down at earth look out into space one of the uh, passengers or one of the civilian astronauts is 
somebody called Haley Arsenault. She is a cancer survivor who went on to be uh, a physician's assistant at St. Jude, uh, who are actually, th this mission is raising money for St. Jude. Uh, the aim is 200 million. But she is technically the medical officer on this trip, and she'll be doing biological, physiological experiments on her crewmates while they're in orbit for three mm. days. You know, they'll be moving around the cabin. And, and as, you know, I've, I've been telling people, Chris Zembrowski, who's the mission specialist, he won his seat because his buddy won the seat in a lottery or a, 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 a raffle or a lottery. He didn't want to go, so he gave his, his seat to Chris. And Chris has taken a ukulele with him. So he'll be discovering what it's like to play a string instrument in space. Ed, recap for us here. There, and you know the inner workings of the top three. You mentioned Virgin Galactic and SpaceX and Blue Origin and right. the inherent, maybe friendly competition, though, if one succeeds, then we all can succeed. Where are we in, in wanting to be the first, wanting to be the best, but also knowing that multiple players in this market in the end actually could be better? Yeah, I think, you know, the main voice in all of this is NASA, right? SpaceX's success to date was born out of the commercial crew program, which NASA put in place a decade ago, because simply the public sector funded space programs weren't working. You know, the shuttle program ultimately was shut down. And NASA's view on this is that competition is good and the private sector is good. They, they had no involvement in this mission. They did not fund it. They did not take part in the training or the risk assessment. But they think that it's a really substantive step forward. So that's one part of it. But to be completely frank, SpaceX is so ahead of the game compared with the rest of the players. Um, you know, it, basically, SpaceX sends two-thirds of all payloads sent from Earth to orbit. That includes everyone, private sector, government payloads. You know, they dominate that industry, not because they have some kind of monopoly, but because they simply are just the best at it. You know, they, have, they, they can fly with such regularity because their technology is the best. And the final thing I would say is that it's unequivocal across the investment community, NASA, aerospace engineers. This mission is such a much bigger deal than what we saw from Bezos and, and Branson. Yep. It is an order of magnitude more difficult and risky what they have done. Real quickly, Ed, how did they get back? Did they splash down in an ocean a la the Apollo astronauts? How did they get yeah. back? Yeah, exactly so. There are several target zones uh, off the coast of Florida. It's completely weather dependent, the timing and exact location. But the Dragon capsule can orient itself so that the Earth's gravitational pull brings it back down through Earth's atmosphere. The flat bottom slows it down with air resistance, and then it uses a series of parachutes. And by the time it does splash down, it's just a few miles an hour. Nice and gentle. Ed Ludlow, thank you so much for joining us. Nice and gentle. Oh, Ed. Ed Ludlow, West Coast correspondent for Bloomberg News. He is down in Cape Canaveral bringing us live reporting on this really, really cool space mission, SpaceX. And I like how Ed framed it out for us. Order of magnitude more difficult than, than what we saw from just recently from Richard Branson and uh, and uh, well, Jeff Bezos. Yeah, no, Ed is great. He, he knows the stuff inside and out and always brings us uh, some perspective along with some humor. Well, we have red on the screen, but it's been an odd week. You know, one day up, the next day down, the next day up. So no real direction here, at least 
uh, for this week as people come back and uh, kind of get focused on this market in September. Let's bring in David Kudla. Uh, he is founder, CEO, and chief investment strategist at Mainstay Capital. They have about $3.8 billion uh, under management. David, uh, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, the market feels a little directionless here. Where do you think the next 5 to 10% move is? A lot of folks feel like it's to the downside. Good morning, Paul. Yeah, it, it, it definitely seems like the market is uh, just uh, meandering, meandering sideways. Uh, we've had seven of the last nine days have been negative days for the index, but uh, peak to trough intraday, that's only a little over 2% decline. So it's not the extreme volatility that some might expect in September and October or we've been waiting for for so long. Uh, this has been a very non-volatile year uh, for the market indexes for stocks in general. I think that, uh, though, that as we work through this, I think the direction for the market through year-end is higher, um, and higher by as much as another 4 or 5%, And is that based on fundamentals or FOMO? Well, cer uh, certainly FOMO has been uh, an important factor in, in this bull market all the way through. Certainly, um, you know, by this time last year, as we came off the bear market lows in March. But, you know, when we when we look at where we're at in the cycle, uh, and there is questions about the economy, there's questions about uh, what, you know, we've had downward revisions by the Fed, Atlanta Fed, and their GDP forecast by a lot of the big banks in their GDP forecasts. Uh, but we've still got an economy that's growing. We've got uh, the risk of inflation, but our latest number, uh, inflation was down a little bit. Import prices, uh, came in uh, down three-tenths of a percent. That's uh, the lowest in a year, or, or the first uh, decline in a year. So we're importing less inflation. So, uh, you know, that when we when we net that all out, though, uh, I believe that we, we still have higher for the market to go based on fundamentals, based on also our belief, not the consensus belief, but our belief that Fed tightening or Fed tapering is not coming as soon as, as many might expect. Because hmm. it seems like, you know, again, we did get some uh, hawkish views on tapering from the Fed recently, yet, the, as you know, as you just mentioned, the market's only off a couple of percent from its highs. So if you're a bull, you could take that as a you know pretty decent sign. Is that how you think about it? Yeah, and the other thing that we're uh, maybe at a non-consensus view on also is the uh, – where we are with COVID uh, and where we're going. You know, we, I've probably heard five times over the last five weeks that, uh, that uh, the Delta variant has peaked, but yet we've got the news uh, here this week that the state of Iowa is rationing hospital beds. Who would have thought at this point in the pande pandemic, anywhere in the U.S., we'd be rationing hospital beds? deciding who's going to get treatment or not. So, you know, and the way we look at it is we're only another variant away from that having even further economic impacts, impacts on the supply chain. And, you know, those are things that the Fed will consider and when they do or don't taper. And there's just so much. So with the amount of liquidity that's out there, $120 billion a month, there's so much liquidity. I think that's why we haven't seen any significant downstrokes uh, downside volatility of the market, and the trend continues to be higher. 
I am curious what cues you're taking from the bond market with spreads still so tight relative to historical standards. Again, does that sound like fundamentals or is this excess yield taking? Well, you know, the question is, what kind of signals can we take from the bond market at all these days? Uh, you know, how can we have a 10-year yield, 10-year Treasury yield, trading around 1.3% when inflation is at 53 or 5.4%? Uh, use the Taylor roll, use any roll. Um, we've talked about it a lot. Uh, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Uh, so, you know, bond yields are so much influenced by uh, the artificial factor, the intervention of the Fed. Uh, we think it's more telling of what the Fed is doing uh, than what it can give us in, in terms of good signals about the economy. Valuation. Where are we? Are you concerned? Valuations are stretched, but they're stretched in a low interest rate environment. As I said, the 10-year trading down around uh, 1.3%. So uh, we, we think we can still have multiple expansion in the U.S. But, you know, one thing that we're looking at is is uh, is we're looking abroad because what we've seen now is if we look at the MSCI um, all-country index, yep. uh, ex-U.S., basically 85% of that is, is developed countries. We're, um, that index is trading at a 30.5% discount to the S&P 500. That's the highest ever. Right. So we're also looking abroad uh, to foreign opportunities in Europe, in Japan, uh, to both diversify our portfolio for overall yep. risk mitigation and as a tactical opportunity for outperformance going forward. Interesting. All right, David, thank you so much for joining us uh, again. We always appreciate getting your thoughts. David Kudla, founder, CEO, and chief investment strategist of Mainstay Capital Management. Interesting takeaway there, kind of looking at the outside the U.S. Uh, for opportunities and seeing evaluation play there. Let's talk crypto here. I guess one of the issues for a lot of folks that I talk to, you know, just kind of cocktail conversation is I hear all about this crypto stuff, Bitcoin. How do I get exposure to it? How do I invest in it? Well, let's check in with Ian Bellina, founder and CEO of Token Metrics. Uh, Ian, you're also the uh, author of the book Crypto Investing Guide, How to Invest in Bitcoin, DeFi, NFTs, and more. So, Ian, when people come up to you at a cocktail party and say, how do I invest in crypto? I feel like I should have some percentage of my portfolio in crypto. What's your go-to response? Uh, well, thanks for having me. The go-to response is integrated because it is a new asset class. It is riskier than other asset classes. However, there is an opportunity for more upside. What I typically tell them is start by investing with what you're willing to lose, whether that's 1% of your net worth, whether that's 5% of your net worth. But whatever you invest into crypto, make sure you're willing to lose this because um, there's upside, but there's also lots of downside with crypto investing. And just learn about the space become educated. That's why we have the book that we published recently, as, as you mentioned, the Crypto Investor right, Guide. Get, because see if we can, Ian, I think we're, we got a kind of a choppy line there, so we're going to see if we can improve that. Uh, and if we can, we'll come back to you. I'm just looking at Bitcoin here today. Uh, XBT is the uh, symbol $47,368 or $370 per token, off about 1.1% today. Did get up to 52000 uh, and it's got a support, Taylor, I mean, for the technical folks out there for, uh -huh. for Bitcoin. 
of about $30,000 per token. That's been tested several times, but it bounced really nicely off of that 30000 the last time it got up to, to $52,000 per token. Yeah, and there's been a lot of interesting conversations. We spoke with Eric Balchunas, our the expert. ETF yes. expert yesterday, Bloomberg Intelligence, and he twice now was pretty strongly put his money on a Bitcoin or a crypto ETF by around mid-October or so that SEC Gary Gensler and I'm not going to get into all the craziness that Eric Valjunas can do so right. well, but the Securities Act of 34 versus 40, and Eric was saying Gary Gensler prefers one, and so this <laughs> way they can get through the ETF this way, and uh, you know that could be a huge catalyst for yep. this market as well, uh, Eric was saying. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting. Uh, we have Ian Bellina back, founder and CEO of Token Metrics. So, Ian, again, you kind of start off by saying, how do you invest in this? And you do it carefully. Uh, how important do you think getting an ETF, uh, a Bitcoin ETF or crypto ETF will be to the growth of this market? I think it will be huge because it will be a, an avenue for people to slowly, passively invest into crypto assets. And I think it will be really the welcoming of institutional investors and people with the 401ks, the pension funds, being able to invest into crypto without having to become experts in crypto. Can you talk to us about institutional investors when they come in? Does it help legitimize the market? You've had Steve Cohen, I think, say that he's getting in because his son told him all about it. Ray Dalio has said that cash is trash and he's sort of dipping around lightly in crypto. Do all of those headlines help legitimize the market? Yes, absolutely. Because people look at institutional investors for guidance in terms of where to go for new asset classes. So when they see smart money entering the space, it gives a validation, it gives people comfort that crypto assets are here to stay long-term if smart money is entering the space. All right, so again, Ian, uh, you know, we have actually on the Bloomberg Terminal, CRYP is a function, it's kind of the monitor for all things crypto and what trades out there. Uh, right now, it seems to be, you know, one of the, it's Bitcoin, it's Ethereum. Is that kind of where people should be focused on at this point as they wait for potentially an ETF? Uh, yes, but what's really been taking off recently have been layer one protocols, essentially new blockchains similar to Ethereum and Bitcoin, but with different use cases. So as of recently, projects like Avalanche, Solana, Algorand, all these different projects have been getting lots of interest from smart money, from, inst from uh, institutions. And these could be a possible hedge versus Bitcoin and Ethereum, although they're still pretty nascent as, as uh, technologies. What did El Salvador a few weeks ago, the first country to adopt mm, this yeah. as sort of a legitimate currency, if you will, what did that teach us, if anything? It taught us that it's possible. It's possible for a country, a government, a central bank to to bring in Bitcoin, a new, a new digital currency, into its economy and it's really now building out the model for other countries to follow. So, for example, Paraguay and some other countries are looking to possibly replicate what, what, what has been done by El Salvador. But e even with the volatility, I mean, did they show us that really like a currency is the right way instead of a store of value, even with all the volatility? I think right now it's still an experiment. Uh, a lot remains to be seen in terms of what happens next. Um, for example, I was speaking to, uh, to the Minister of Finance of a country in Africa, and they're saying they find it challenging to bring in a currency to replace their own currency. However, they would be open to bringing in digital assets and seeing how they um, are taken on by the country while still having control. 
So I think right now other countries are seeing what's going on over there and trying to learn and see if that can be replicated in their own economies. All right, Ian, thank you so much uh, for joining us there. Ian Bellina, founder and CEO of Token Metrics, kind of getting an update on kind of this crypto market again. A lot of folks are thinking about how they should get some exposure. And Ian was suggesting, you know, a very small percentage, one or two percent, perhaps of your portfolio. Be prepared to lose that all given the volatility uh, that we're seeing in these early stages of crypto. But again, a lot of interest out there and a lot of folks are really waiting uh, for that ETF to come. Uh, so we will certainly stay on top of this story. More to come. This is Bloomberg. Some pretty good retail sales uh, numbers we got this morning. Let's break them down with Angie Solonke, uh, National Director, U.S. Retail for Colliers, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Angie, thanks so much for joining us here. Love to just get your thoughts here. Uh, you know, you're knee deep in all things retail. What did you take away from this morning's numbers? Oh, it was, I was more than thrilled. I have to say the retail positivity and the momentum that we've seen from the beginning of the year has been great, but we are starting to normalize. One thing to note, every person is spending an additional $260 as of last month. So quite a bit of spend. So I'm excited to, to see these trends. Is the spend sustainable? We all know that the data show us the consumer. Most consumers got more wealthy in the pandemic when you think about the savings. So is that sustainable going forward? I don't think it will. We'll start to see some sort of normalization towards the end of the year, although positive, um, as we, we hit uh, the end of 2020 and exit. Uh, we'll start to see a normalization. I think what, what will happen is things will start to reset and it will start to flatten out. I think our biggest concern right now in terms of retail is the slowdown in terms of global manufacturing, and that will hurt us. So we're already seeing challenges in retail where retailers are starting to face a lack of merchandise in stores. So, of course, that will automatically also take place online as well. So, Angie, here in uh, New York City, Bloomberg HQ here on uh, Lexington Avenue, uh, all the retail shops between 58th and 59th Street on Lexington, with the exception of one small little Swiss chocolate store, they're all empty. And we were talking some big box retailers. Give us a sense of how you think physical retailing will come back here as we get to the other side of this pandemic. Definitely. You know, we actually, it was interesting to, um, we've done some research in-house. What we've actually seen from a big box perspective is actual growth, but growth in secondary markets, um, in the suburbs, as we've all been hearing in the reports lately, the work from home uh, mindset continues to, you know, pretty be pretty much be stable, and therefore a lot of these big box operators are looking at, you know, identifying locations pretty much outside of some of the denser cities. So the recovery will come back to Lexington, to you know Union Square, San Francisco. It's just going to be a slower recovery. Yeah, interesting. We certainly are hoping, at least for <laughs> our neighborhood here, that 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 is the case. Talk to us about some of the seasonality that we might see in these numbers. A lot of this was anticipation of back to school. I was speaking with the executive director of the Port of Long Beach yesterday, saying that you have to start shopping now for Christmas because you're 50 ships off the coast and we can't stock shelves fast enough. How were the shelves on back to school? How do you see that playing out during the holiday season coming up? 
Yeah, that's the real challenge. Um, and we're already hearing from many of our retailers that we work with that these uh, the supply chain, the, the, the merchandise that's still sitting out um, is delaying product delivery. And it is being delayed anywhere from three to four to five months, which is causing, you know, this kind of pent-up demand, but yet this frustration from the customer's point of view. So their challenge with, oh, my goodness, how quick, how early do I need to buy for my holiday shopping? Um, I just read this, which is really fascinating to me. Apparently, the disruption in supply chain um, as it relates to artificial Christmas trees is causing pricing to skyrocket up by 25%. So we're seeing this across every level of merchandise, whether it's shoes, apparel, you name it, furniture. The delays are just exponential. And are people going to sit back and wait? This is it, they're, they're forced to at this point. How about uh, labor, Angie? It seems like uh, every restaurant you walk by or go into says, we need workers. Um, how are the restaurants yeah. dealing with the labor shortage? It's really challenging. They're limiting their menus. Uh, they're shortening their hours. And due to the, you know, purely because of labor issues, they're also, you know, at this point, some of the smaller restaurant groups that are more, I would, you know, not your nationals or regionals, are starting to not only increase their hourly wages um, beyond the uh, minimum wage, but also giving uh, bonuses in order to attract. Um, we're also starting to see people tap into high schools and asking, you know, the 14, 15, 16-year-olds to see how they can intern slash learn a new skill set hmm. in order to help the labor issues that were faced um, in, in pretty much most markets. Yeah, we're seeing that uh, across the board. We're hearing that across the board uh, as well from a lot of industries. Angie Solonki, National Director, U.S. Retail for Colliers. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.